Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey friends, welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast. I am your co-host, Owen. This is the first episode that I'm doing the, the intro of. Uh, today, I'm here with uh, my fellow co-host, Vonch. Vonch, how are you? Great, very, very excited that you're hosting this episode, Owen. Uh, great to, great to join in, join in again. And uh, yeah, looking forward to what we have in store for our listeners today. Yeah, well, I appreciate the ego boost. And today we have a very special guest with us, uh, Sri Hari. He is a uh, he's a tennis fan who we've interacted with a lot on tennis Twitter. He always has insightful things to say. And uh, so yeah, we're here to talk uh, to him today on the podcast. Sri Hari, how are you? I'm good, Owen. Thank you, and uh, thank you, Vanch, for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm no really looking for forward to uh, chatting with you guys because I believe we've interacted on Twitter for pretty much more than a year, and we've never really, uh, you know, spoken uh, uh, with one another about tennis and just, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just looking forward to having that discussion. Yeah, it's definitely nice to be able to talk without character limits. We had a couple spaces where all of us were on earlier in the week, and those were a lot of fun as well, um, just to be able to talk without those restrictions. So, um, so yeah, we, we had a few questions for you. I guess something we can start with is um, what, what exactly drew you to tennis as a sport? How did you become a tennis fan? Um, how did you become sort of a big tennis fan? Just take us through your experience with that. So I was predominantly... Uh cricket fan that's how I got into sport um, and I I believe it was back in 2007 that's when I I pretty much uh, gained my first interest in tennis because up until then all I knew about tennis was you know Roger Federer is the king of grass Rafa Nadal is the king of play and those two would meet uh, most of the time I believe for um, like three consecutive years, they met in the finals of French Open and Wimbledon. And all I knew was Rafa would beat Roger at Roland Garros and Roger would beat Rafa at Wimbledon. And I, while that was pretty cool to see, I I also wanted to see somebody who, who you know, somebody new who would probably like step up and uh, take it to these guys and probably beat them as well. And that's when I... Uh, I came across this guy called Novak Djokovic, who had just uh, beaten the world number three, Andy Roddick, and number two, Rafa Nadal in uh, the uh, Rogers Cup in Montreal in 2007. And he was about to face the world number one. And, uh, uh, you know, at the time, at least the you know, the best player in the world, Roger Federer. And I, I thought, okay, this is someone I could get behind, you know, because he would probably break the, like, he would probably be the one to break this uh, duopoly between Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal. He did end up winning 
in three thrilling sets. And that kind of gave me hope that, you know, tennis would not just be, I mean, it's, it's not that I had anything against Federer or Nadal or anybody else. I just, you know, these two were so great that, you know, it, it, seeing somebody else shine uh, in, in the same era as these two would just be, I, I believe that the time would, would be, would have been remarkable. So I thought, okay, I can get behind this guy. And I, I didn't really follow tennis too much, although shortly after Djokovic would win his first Grand Slam beating Federer um, in the semis of the 2008 Australian Open, I still didn't, I, I, I didn't pick it up. I didn't pick up tennis as my primary sport. I was still following cricket for most of it. And I, I believe, you know, Djokovic was still, he was, he was flashy at the time. He was, he, he was definitely... He definitely had ways to go in terms of consistency. He's sure he did beat Federer and Nadal a few times, but he was also losing to them most of uh, in most of their encounters until, of, of course, 2011. And that's when you know pretty much everything changed. The the tide completely shifted, and you know since then it's it's, it's been one journey, I would say. And um, yeah. And there, there's a lot more, of course. Uh, 2011, as we know, one of the greatest seasons, not just in Djokovic's career, but in all of tennis, you know, with the 41-0 and uh, zero, uh, winning start. I think, I don't think we would see that for a while. Um, you know, at, at least not in the foreseeable future. And the way everything just changed, it just became the decade of Novak Djokovic. And... Uh, I think I think that's just that's just so special for me as a fan. Um, you know, I I would say you know, someone who's who's been behind Djokovic not just from 2011, but from a few years before that. I think it was just like special to see how like the player he's molded into, and you know, at the moment he's in you could say he's in pole position to uh, get the Grand Slam record and pretty much everything else in sport. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- that's a fantastic history of um, of his career. I feel like that was one of those, almost like one of those ESPN sort of mini histories of a player's game uh, that they do like really theatrically. It was very well said. Um, and this, um, sorry, Vaughn, if, if you want to ask a question, because I had a follow-up to that. No, I mean, I mean, you know, my follow up to that was gonna was uh, gonna consist of more about Djokovic. Like you mentioned, the you know the breaking the duopoly of Federer and Nadal, and that's so interesting that you followed it all the way from two thousand seven, and you know, so you had that knowledge going in, you know, before his twenty eleven season, and so just taking taking that in mind, you know, what was it about Djokovic? his game or his personality or the way he competed against those two guys or just in general that attracted you to him as a player? Like what was it about him? Uh, you know, more specifically, it could be of the person, it could be the, um, I guess the belief and confidence he had in himself. What, what was it about him specifically? Um, it, it, it could be definitely a combination of all of the factors that you mentioned, because definitely he, you know, his personality is, is different. Uh, especially compared to Federer and Nadal, who you you know they are, I mean, they they are pretty serious in how they go about tennis. You you barely see them, you know, even like smile or smirk, or sh- even show as much frustration, like nearly as much frustration as Djokovic. He's 
I would say he's he's more on the human side of like unquote emotions. With I mean, of course, not condoning like some of his uh, you know racket smashes or just like out like outward yelling when it's not required. But I I believe uh, you know he's you could you could relate with him more. And and he also what I appreciate about him is you know more than anyone else when. Like it doesn't matter what what the scoreline is or what the uh, situation of the match is. If if the opponent plays a great point or a great shot, he he's it's probably the first to applaud that or appreciate it. Or you know, a lot of times like during the match, he would uh, maybe not so much these days, but he would he would joke around quite a bit. And you know, some of his uh, interactions with the crowd. I, I believe this was way back. Uh, you know, like. Uh, like 13, 14 years ago, from not anymore now. Um, you know, that was, those were nice to see, especially during the heat of competition. And, uh, you know, it's just little things like that. And also, you know, coming back from, uh, you know, coming back from match points down so many times. Sure, I believe the players have done it, you know, more and, you know, more often than he has. But if you look at, um, if you look at, the situation, you know, and the opponent, like considering which event and who he's playing against, I think it's far more impressive. I think I believe he's won two slams, uh, saving match points against uh, Roger Federer, uh, the, the previous edition of Wimbledon, as we all know, and uh, the U.S. Open uh, semifinal ten years back. And you know, it's it's a shame I didn't watch. Either of those uh, semifinals, because you know I was here in in Dubai, and the the time difference, of course, didn't really permit me to watch either of those matches. But I I wish I watched them live. You know, just going through the the roller coaster of emotions that you know I, I would have probably gone through at the time, and I have for many of his matches, not just in recent times, but the the entire last decade. Uh, you know, in, during which I've watched, uh, watched the sport. And yeah, and also like uh, how he believes himself, believes in himself when even I wouldn't think that, you know, I would think, okay, fine, got to give it to the opponent. He played the better match, you know, but out of nowhere, he just so many times he pulls the rabbit out of the hat and, you know, he, like you just can never count him out. In you know some of these big matches, as as we know, even even recently we saw how he came back against Sitsipas uh, in Rome, and he, he and he he did end up beating Sonego as well. And I thought, okay, if he's going up against Nadal in the final, I guess losing in straight straight sets, a like close. Uh, uh, straight sets would be honorable, but he did end up winning a set, and you know he he was, I mean this could be arguable, but you know he did have a couple of break points in the deciding set, and you know he could have he very much could have won, but I mean it wasn't meant to be. Obviously, Nadal was the better player, but you know, and this is this uh, in spite of him playing five, for five hours the day before, the guy is thirty four years old and he's still. And he's going up against a guy who's bageled in the, the previous two uh, clay court encounters. Still, he almost 
ended up on the winning side. And that's just testament to, you know, his, his, his legacy and, you know, what a fighter he is and how much, you know, determination he has to win certain matches, which nobody would have thought he would have, you know, even he would have ended up winning. That's all I, that's all I could say. Yeah. I mean, no, that's a spectacular sort of summary of what, what Djokovic is as a player. And that, that sort of leads me into my next question, which is, um, so tennis is a very, very emotional and nervy sport. And I think if you're a fan of any of the big three, you're going to have like so many great wins to look back on. But with Djokovic in particular, I was wondering if this particular blend of sort of mental and physical iron that he has, that not only he can pull out matches from match point down, but he's also so physically fit. He doesn't give up on matches. Um, and he's also the favorite when he's peaking, say, in 2011 and 2015 in almost every match he plays. Does that ever give you a sort of sense of security when he plays that just like a really good confidence that he's going to win? Because um, I think more than any other player, when when he's at his best, maybe besides playing Nadal on clay, he's the favorite in any match, um, no matter who's on the other side of the court. So I was wondering if that is sort of a, a, a feeling of security when you watch him play. Yeah, this is a bit paradoxical because, of course, that's there. He is, in most of the matches that he plays, he is an overwhelming favorite for sure. But if you've seen, especially during his peak, maybe if not so much in 2011, but in 2015, there are some matches which, and in 2016, there are some matches which would just make you wonder, especially, uh, I believe, in 2015, uh, the was it the third round or the quarterfinal? in Rome against uh, the uh, Thomas Bellucci, uh, where he did struggle right. in 2015. And in 2016, he got bagel in the first set. And, you know, I was I was watching those matches and I was just wondering, you know, what exactly is going on uh, with, with the match in general, of course. You know, there's definitely something wrong with Djokovic if he's not only losing his set. I mean, sure, the... The opponent could play inspired tennis. That's you know, he's well within his right to do so. But you also gotta wonder: is it so? Like, is he playing so well as to uh, bagel the world number one? I don't know because I believe, especially in 2016, I believe Djokovic had lost just a couple of matches, and one being uh, uh, through through uh, mid-match retirement against Lopez in Dubai, and he got bageled by Bellucci and even even 2011 I believe he, he was about to he was he was almost going to lose to Bellucci in the Madrid semi-final and you know I was and after a spectacular start I was you know I was just wondering it would probably be a shame if it nothing against Bellucci in specific but you know it, you know losing to him in the semi-final where you know he, he would have had the chance to end which he did eventually win of course you know, he played that spectacular final against Nadal in one straight sets. You know, it, 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 it would have been a shame if he had lost to Bellucci. And, and there are many matches against low-ranked opponents where, you know, he either like, he doesn't... It's it's a bit difficult to describe. I believe if, if you see Djokovic play against Nadal or Federer or any other higher-ranked opponent, in a match that has high stakes, you see him show up mentally and physically. But there are some matches where he has letdowns, but you know, he just he comes back 
at just the right time to end up winning the match. I believe he did almost lose to Ernest Bulbis as well in 2015 in the quarterfinals of Montreal. Yeah, and, same you know, yeah he, he did say match points, exactly. So, you know, those things, they kind of make you wonder. He, there are like these matches where he can be vulnerable, where he doesn't feel like he has to bring his best. But, you know, that just, it, that just gives his opponents enough room for uh, to play more freely and, you know, dictate play for majority of the match and probably end up even beating. But again, you know, those were seasons or at least parts of those seasons where he, he really had so much belief in, in himself that, you know, that he could win from pretty much, pretty much every match that he, he would play. That and that he, I believe he lost only like five or six matches each of those seasons. Yeah, six matches in each of uh, 2011 and 2015. And he was pretty much invincible until uh, Rohan Garros of 2016. And you know, but still, that so the sense of security I believe I did have when he faced uh, Rafa in 2011 and you know, up, up until. Uh, 2012, even in the Australian Open, I, I, I did believe that Djokovic was going to win and he could have won in four sets, you know, very much like how Nadal could have very much won um, the 2013 Ron Garros encounters in four sets um, in, in similar fashion, but, you know, in, and, and of course against Roger Federer in 2015 where he beat him in consecutive uh, slam finals in Wimbledon and US Open. I did believe that, you know, I, Djokovic will show up and he, he can win these matches, but against low-ranked opponents and especially in best of three matches, sometimes I feel like he, he even at his peak, he could be quite vulnerable. I don't, I, I haven't watched much of uh, Federer at his peak, so I cannot say whether or not that was the case with him. But this is something I've noticed with Djokovic because sometimes he just doesn't feel like he, he has to bring in his absolute best and, you know, the opponents can just take take the match away from him at some time. But, of course, yeah, when it matters, yeah, I do I do feel like Djokovic is he, he's the favourite to win both, you know, because he's, I mean, he, he's not had any major physical niggles, of course, except for uh, 2017 where, you know, he ended up pulling out of, uh, the second half of the season and he did uh, get surgery and then you know it, I, I believe it's not so much talked about as um, as much as Federer and Nadal's comebacks in 2017 but you know the way he played uh, in the first half of 2018 you wouldn't have even believed he would have finished in the top 10 let alone finished number one it's just crazy the turnaround that happened from there you know winning Wimbledon and Cincinnati US Open in Shanghai. He just, you know, he just took it up uh, to a different notch altogether. And um, so, yeah, I, I guess that I don't know if that made too much sense, but, you know, I've watched a lot of Djokovic's uh, matches. So I can, I could say this confidently that, you know, in the big matches, I even now, I, I believe I was one of the few people who were quite confident in him during the Australian Open final. A lot of people thought, it, you know, Medvedev, it, 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 it would be Medvedev's day. And, you know, he's the, uh, he's the more, uh, uh, he's the younger and he, he looks uh, probably fitter, I guess, because Djokovic did 
uh, they'd had that injury against Fritz in the third round. But I believe that, you know, he, it's a big match. He's, he definitely wants it. I don't see him. I didn't see him losing, but then he, and he eventually did. And pretty much the same case against Nadal a couple of years ago. A lot of people, especially, uh, you know, experts like Navratilova and Pat, Patrick McEnroe, they felt Nadal would win. But I, I didn't, I, I didn't think Djokovic was really going to lose any of those matches. I, I, I didn't think he was going to bring his best and win those matches, which he did. So in the big matches, yes, I still, I still back on Djokovic, but he, he can definitely be vulnerable. Yeah, I mean that's a great answer, and you made yes. great calls on those Australian Open finals. I feel like that was a bit of a shot at me as someone who picked Medvedev to win. I actually remember uh, chatting with you about that on Twitter, and in retrospect, everything you said was completely right. Um, in those big matches. Uh, there is no one better when things get really, really tight. And um, and he's also just so good at playing his absolute best tennis right from the outset of those big matches. So, uh, Vance, yeah. you got it. Um, and then, obviously, you know, it's very interesting that you also bring up those times where he's vulnerable. Because I think, um, you know, that's what draws people in also to sport. I feel like when somebody is vulnerable and, you know, they they show that vulnerability it could be losing or it could be earlier in the tournament. You start to, you, you, you start as a sports fan to, you know, really question the way things are going to run. You know, you start thinking, yes. hmm, isn't this, this is, this is getting interesting. This is not what I expected, you know, getting bageled by Bellucci in the fourth round of Rome. I mean, sorry, Bellucci, if you're listening to this podcast, we, Bellucci the goat. We, we love you. Don't worry. But like, but like, um, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned those matches because I, I always feel like in all of the majors that Novak has won, you know, there's always those tricky rounds that he has to go through. And it's usually mid tournament in the third, fourth round where he's not at his best. Or like you said, he's not maybe fully, uh, fully motivated in top gear or top flight tennis quite yet, but then he gets himself out of that tough situation or he, it could even be the 2021 Australian Open when he was, um, you know, it was in a fifth set against Fritz and he was struggling with the injury. Or it could be moments like even in 2015 Wimbledon where he's two sets to love down against Kevin Anderson. You know, moments like that, the moment you get out of a match like that, the liberty that he gets out of that and the freedom and the belief that he has to then peak in those big moments time after time again in semis and finals of these majors is what's continued to, it's what's, you know, led to this decade of dominance from him. And I just, um, you know, we as fans and we as uh, people on this podcast, we're, you know, constantly amazed by his ability to do that. And so, you know, to to bring that up, I think that's that that's interesting because many people point out his victories, but the amount of, um, you know, I guess trials and tribulations he goes through in in between these tournaments you know, in those third, fourth round quarterfinal matches. I think that's what really, uh, you know, takes me back every time when you when you see him hold up those Australian Open trophies or Wimbledon trophies. Yes, absolutely. And, you, you know, uh, it's good that you brought up this year's Australian Open. And, you know, that's, I guess that's that's another reason why, you know, he he's never won a major without dropping a set. And, you know, even even his absolute uh, best slam performances, you have seen him drop a set or two. Even, even the 2011 Australian Open, I believe he, he dropped a set to Ivan Dodik yeah, in that was the a close second or third round. 
Yeah, it was a tiebreaker, and I believe he was he had set points there, if if I'm not mistaken. And I didn't watch that match. You know, I was in school then. I was only 11 years old, and I I came back and I you know obviously I was just uh, following what happened. I would usually check the scores, and back then you know I don't think we had the liberty of just googling a player's name and then the score of the match would pop up. I would go to ATP's website and I would click on the scores tab or like look at the new segments and that's how I would uh I would get my dose of tennis news from whichever tournament. And I, I think he played at such a high level in, in that event and he still ended up losing a set because you know that's just he that's just how especially in uh you know in best of five sets where you know he 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 feels that you know it's okay if I drop a set, uh, you know sometimes two. I guess I mean he usually doesn't. I guess one exception would be uh, the fourth round match against Gilles Simon in 2016, where he sprayed a hundred unforced errors and still ended up winning. And after that, he just demolished whoever came his way. I mean, granted, Federer did end up taking a set from him. You know, again, that's that's just incredible how Federer managed to do that because in the the way the match was going, I thought it would be done under an hour and a half. I believe Djokovic had break points in the third set of that mm-hmm. semifinal as well, but Federer pulled it back. He 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 snagged the set, which was it was just amazing. Um, you know, but yeah, matches like you know tournaments like these where he feels okay, I don't have to really peak. Uh, for for in this for uh, for the entire uh, match in the early rounds and just like rather save it for uh, much. I mean, obviously that's not really disrespectful to any other opening. You would want to uh, like preserve your best for the for your tougher competition, um, you know. And it, it would make sense for you to do that, especially in the slam, to preserve your best. For you know the the final few rounds, the quarters, the semis, and the finals, and he's been doing that for, uh, time and again. And uh, he even even I think the 2016 Roland Garros, he didn't particularly play at a very high level. He I believe he struggled a lot against uh, Bautista Agut in the fourth round. And you know, especially the second set, I, I, that had me worried for sure because a, a good wins the first set, and then play gets called off, and and Djokovic was up a break several times, and he somehow struggled and won the second set, but it was still a battle. And I, you know, I I genuinely thought, okay, you know, a good is a guy who's like for pretty much every match you you could say that they played, especially at at a grandstand level, he, it's gone four sets when they play. And I thought, you know, it, and it's Djokovic, French Open, where, you know, you've seen, sure, Nadal's not there anymore. He, even, even when Nadal was there, no disrespect to Nadal, just a disclaimer again. But I believed every, pretty much most people had Djokovic as the favorite that year. I hope there's no disagreement there. But even when Nadal uh, withdrew, you know, I, I think that added a bit more pressure to Djokovic, especially considering what happened the previous year. That was pretty much a freak show what happened in the final where Wawrinka just, he played on another level. And, you know, 
these are moments where he does he did feel tight especially when a lot of times when he had the lead and you would have expected him to close it out comfortably but you know he 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 brought himself self to positions that were uh he you know he he need not have he could have just closed you know closed the set or match out earlier especially in the final he was 5-2 up against Andy but he eventually closed out 6-4 and i believe uh murray uh i don't know if he had he had break point at 5-4 no, uh, but it did go to deuce oh yeah it, it did go to deuce and that was really nerve-wracking for me and for him obviously because he was so close to finish line and uh, you know the, the like memories uh you know not the most pleasant memories they flash and you suddenly feel uh, you know you, you you get nervy things get tight and before you know it you know this contest becomes a match again and you don't know which way it's going to swing and you don't want that especially in the final way so close to winning this elusive stamp so that's that that's about it feel mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually the first major tournament I ever watched, the 2016 Roland Garros. And I remember, I didn't see it from the beginning, but I remember, like, in retrospect, I think the the three best sets Djokovic played that tournament were the last three sets of the final against Murray. And that's just a testament to how good he is at peaking at the right times because that was maybe, well, one of, but maybe the most pressured matches he's played in his career. Um, so it was amazing that he was able to come through that especially when it got tight at the end. And um, and this is leaping back in time a little bit, and you uh, briefly mentioned it, um, but I, I need to know your thoughts on uh, the 2012 Australian Open final because uh, that is one of my favorite matches to go back and watch. Um, and like that match had everything from a Djokovic perspective. It had him sort of struggling in the first set, uh, gritting out the second set, like absolutely peaking in the third and just blowing it all off the court, and then um, losing a really heartbreakingly close fourth set and then resetting finally to win the fifth set. So I guess from your point of view, um, what moments in that match specifically were the most tense and uh, when were you the most uh, proud of Djokovic uh, in that match? Well, yeah, uh, I was dazed from the fourth set until I would say, you know, I, I wasn't really surprised when Nadal went up a break in the fifth set, although I was really nervous for sure because I, I don't want to see Novak losing. That's that's granted every match I watch. But, you know, the, that fourth set, he was, this this again is just, it, it goes without saying what an incredible fighter Nadal is, you know, one of the greatest of us, uh, uh, you know, greatest of all time for sure. I don't think that's even a discussion uh, whether or not he's in, the, he's in the debate. He's been for uh, for more than a decade now. And I don't think anyone really is uh, any sane fan would ever uh, dispute that. And he, he really showed why, because, you know, it's, it's not his favorite service. It's not his best plan for sure. But, you know, he, he could have very much lost in the fourth set. He was down love 40 at 4-3. And I remember uh, they cut to the uh, Norman Brooks Challenge Cup and they showed Djokovic returning Nadal serve and I thought, okay, this is this is a done deal. Right? I don't, uh, I don't see uh, how Djokovic is not win this now. But I don't think that game specifically, Djokovic played any played any point badly or did any made any uh, mistakes as such because it was just Nadal 
who uh, yeah it's it's kind of hard to explain because it usually you would have it, it it would have been totally fine if any player even if it was Nadal who would have if he would have gotten broken that game and eventually ended up losing the match i don't think anyone would have really you know come down on him but he just the way he fought he and then he drew level and also in the tiebreaker which i believe jokovic i mean you know he was he was a few shots away from just taking it there but i i believe at 5-3 and even at 5-6 when nadal had set point he he missed these easy forehands and but sure he did that but it just goes to nadal and the way he celebrated you know kneeling down and just uh you know, because like it, it was it was incredible how you know nadal just got back into the match i believe those i don't want to name anyone here but even those who are not really fans of nadal they enjoy how uh nadal came back and and especially at celebration after winning that fourth set you know and then after that i was just dazed and i was wondering okay where does this go jokovic should have won by now i don't i i'm not i'm really not in the mood for an other five setter especially considering the marathon jokovic played against andy murray which i believe is not talked as much which is a shame because it's one of the best matches ever if you ask me mm-hmm. and you know the quality of that match is just it's all, it was off the charts and we we did see jokovic he did look uh he 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 didn't look as fresh as he would have liked and you know it, and then uh, especially the the way he came back in the fourth set he just wiped the side murray and he should have won the fifth set a lot easier and that again went back and forth he was 5-2 up but then all of a sudden andy murray is break points to serve for the match the way he came through that again 7-5 in the fifth and you know that that was incredible enough and i was not in the mood for another five setter but you know the the way i mean those you would say animalistic rallies and that's just the the highlight of this rivalry you know the like it doesn't matter which decade post 2010 or even uh you know from 2006 when they started it's that's all that's been the highlight of this rivalry and we and that was uh i, I think that peaked in that match for sure and sure you know some people would say that's kind of exaggerated the match should have been done four sets probably uh, i i believe so too i think jokovic should have won that in four sets but again that that makes it more special the way nadal came back and you know that that you know that r- really painful backhand miss at 4-2-30-15 i think that's that's still fresh in many people's memories sadly and uh, you know i i think these are uh these are those moments where you know you you would never know that they like in such such margins would be the deciding factor of a match or even a tournament at the end of it but uh you know it, it's just and i was when i was most nervous was when jokovic served 4-5 and finally he did hold without too many issues there and then again he he, he broke and i thought okay he definitely has this now i don't see why and why he he uh, how he was he's going to lose it from here or even get broken and i i was reminded of the fact that this is exactly how i felt the previous set which he ended up losing and nadal didn't have a break point and but the way again you know even even back in 2012 uh, 
I mean, at the time, of course, Djokovic just won. Uh, you know, he was just a four-time Slam champion. He was, he, he was, he was getting there. I mean, obviously, he was still not in the category of Federer and Nadal, at least you know, in terms of overall achievements. But then, you know, you could see this mentality, uh, you know, mold at, at that time itself, like the like how clutch he was, and in saving that break point, and you know, just like crunching out those final two points and just winning it like in spite of the the fact that they played nearly six hours and um, not uh, not uh, not more than two days ago he he played for five hours again ready to pop the question the jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Andy Murray, but he's still, you know, going through that, I think that's just amazing. But, you know, equally, you have to give it to Nadal for making him, making a real, real thriller out of uh, out of that match from the position he was in. And obviously, that's going to go down as one of the greatest matches of all that. Yeah, that's a very good synopsis and summary of the, of the match and kind of reliving a lot of Djokovic's moments. Now, I'd like to ask you, you know, what was it like to to meet Djokovic personally because I know you've uh, gotten a photo with him and you've you've seen him live so what was just talk a little bit about that experience and how was how was that like for you yeah that I'm, I'm glad that happened not just once sure I have a I have a picture of him uh, I'm not, not of him I have a picture with him but you know I've seen him live I think six or seven times and I can uh, from first-hand experience, I can say that, sure, you know, the crowd, I, I cannot say they're anti-Djokovic. I never felt that way, especially watching a match live. Sure, I've watched some matches on television and I felt that the crowd has been unfair. Not always, but some. And the one particular match, especially from, you know, from the recent past would be his match against Kyle Edmund in 2018. Uh, in the 2018 Wimbledon third round, and that I think I think the crowd was unacceptable that day. But he, you know, but he I think he responded the best way possible, not only to the crowd, but you know, like he the the way he won that match, you know, the, and yeah, playing the home favorite, and he Djokovic was not really at where he would have liked to be. Sure, he almost won Queens. But, you know, he was still getting that. But the way he crunched out that match was incredible. Although that that being aside, um, I've watched a lot of matches 
of him. And I, I believe, and, and, and I've also seen how the fans are with him during, not only during the match or after the match, but, you know, as he's leaving, uh, as he's leaving the court and, you know, or even after a practice session, a lot, like it is so difficult to get a picture with him or sometimes even get an autograph of his, you know, with how people just swarm in. And, and this guy also, he's just so great with fans uh, because I believe it was in uh, the exhibition event in Abu Dhabi three years ago, 2018, where he was leaving from his autograph session, which, you know, they, uh, I think the line was capped off at a certain point and people were disappointed because most of that, most of the people in that queue were already there for um, Kevin Anderson's autograph session, which was before it. But even then, as he was entering and as he was leaving, there were security guards following him and basically not allowing anyone else to take pictures with him or get an autograph with him. But even then, he, you know, he obliged and he took, he, he did, uh, you know, take people's phones and he took selfies with them. He signed autographs openly, even though they were not in the uh, autograph signing, uh, like autograph uh, session Q and a uh, uh, autograph session Q uh, at the time. He still signed autographs for them. He took pictures with them. He interacted with fans too, and which I think was just great to see. And I even saw him in Indian Wells. I, I almost got a picture with him again, but somebody. And I was pushed by somebody, unfortunately, and you know, and I could not really click a picture, which I guess was unfortunate. Uh, but I, but the fans, you know, they 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 really love him. I, I don't I don't really understand how you know not just not just people on social media, but also you know you see commentators and experts say that oh he's not as loved as Federer and Nadal. I mean I. I sure. I mean, Federer and Nadal were, were you know, they were dominant before him. So I guess it's it's natural for people to sway towards them more than him because, and it, it's and I don't think they. I think he just peaked at the wrong time. He, you know, Federer and Nadal were established uh, fan favorites at the time, and then you know their fans. Uh, it, it would have been difficult for them to see this guy beat them success successively so i guess that's the that's the main reason why you know they they're sort of repulsive towards novak but i think when when it's all said and done i'm sure everyone's going to miss all all of these three guys and you know because it's just i mean i i you you, it's hard for us to see anyone even like come close to replicating these three uh in the near future sure i mean people would have said this about during the Borg McEnroe era and then Sampras, uh, uh, Sampras, Agassi, Becker, and when these guys were there, sure, people would have said the same thing. But these guys, they just took it to the next level. And it's going to be hard for us to see anybody really come close to the aura created by these two, not only on court, but off court, because they're, you know, they're obviously such great ambassadors of the sport as well. And yeah, coming back to that, it, that was, you know, it, that was eye-opening for me because even I would think, okay, people, why do people not like this guy so much? Why is he so hated? But that is just restricted to 
social media, I would say, because when you actually go these events and, you know, you get a first-hand experience, you do see that people, you know, like they do go nuts when they see him. They they want to take pictures with him. They want his autograph and they want to interact with him. And, you know, th- that that's there. And I, I don't think it's more or less for like Federer and Nadal. I think it's equal for, uh, you, you know, what, like, what like the respect and and the love that they command uh i i, I don't think sure it, it could be more for federal and Adab, but i don't think Djokovic is too far off in that in that regard and the, i would say that boldly because you know i have first-hand experience going to so many events and and a lot of people can't concur with the fact that he's he's just great with fans too you know he makes time for them even after the longest matches he signs autographs for people he takes pictures with them you don't you don't see too many players do that so he really he really cares about about the fans you, you would say yeah i mean that's a great answer and that's awesome that you were able to have that experience it's it's interesting to me in particular that the hate um for him in general seems to be at least in your experience restricted to social media because i think a lot of people have a mistaken perception that what happens on tennis, Twitter, or social media represents life when when it often doesn't. And um, so my next question is, um, so currently the clay season is going on. Roland Garros qualifying is happening. Djokovic is playing in Belgrade too. And Roland Garros, uh, the main draw, is starting in a few days. So I guess what were your thoughts on Djokovic's clay season so far? What did you think of uh, his Rome final with Nadal? You talked a little bit about how how well he did physically to get through and mentally to get through Tsitsipas and Sonego and then make that final really competitive. Um, and I guess, what are your thoughts on Djokovic's chances to add a second Roland Garros to his trophy cabinet? Oh, yeah. Um, that again, we, we you know, it, it's the fact that we, we have this talk every year and we, we consider this guy as, you know, easily the, the one guy who can't take down the doubt. Um, I mean, chances are, of course, slim. They've always been slim. And they are going to get even more slim as, you know, I mean, Djokovic is not getting younger either. He just turned 34. But you, you, don't, you don't really feel that, do you? It's like he doesn't really show too many signs of aging. Uh, like the way he plays, especially, you know, I, that there were some points, especially in Rome, against Sitsipas and Sonego, like some of his gets, uh, you know, like to counter the drop shots or like, uh, you know, forehand or backhand hit out wide by both of them. You know the way he he would slide and uh, you know reach for for those shots. It was just incredible. And I I never. Uh, I mean, if you would just if that was the first time you're watching Joker, you'd be shocked to know that the guy is 34 years old. You know, you would think he's probably in his mid 20s or late 20s. The the way and then I believe and I do remember a lot of people were saying. Uh, you know, especially in 2011, that you know, or the way you know he's like, he he strains himself too much. He's not going to last, but he's still going really strong. You know, he's winning slams. He's still the prime favorite to win. You know, at, at least we would say three of the four snaps. Granted, he doesn't always do so, but you know, we still we still hold him to that regard that he he is the man to beat in most of the slams uh, at the moment. But uh, yeah, about about his play season so far, it's been interesting because you know that loss. I was not too surprised by the loss to Dan Evans. 
And I believe a lot of people were saying that, no, he's, he's pretty much done on clay. But if you look at it historically, Monte Carlo has pretty much been his worst uh, Masters event. Not even Cincinnati. Sure, Cincinnati, he he lost those five finals in straight sets, but he lost to a better player. And uh, you know he did he didn't make the final and lose it. It was not like he he lost in the third round or you know second round of the quarterfinals most of the time. But in in Monte Carlo, especially in 2016, if you see that was his, that was the first completed match that he lost. I, I believe he touched up a bit on this earlier in this podcast. But he lost to Yuri Vesely, who is predominantly a grass court player, and he lost to him on clay. And that was obviously such a shock loss, considering he was the defending champion and the way he was going. It was so hard for anyone to even imagine Djokovic losing a match. But he did lose to Yuri Veslik. And I believe there are... Um, I don't know if I can point out more instances than that, but you know there are uh, matches where you know, he's... Uh, he's not really played his best. Uh, you know, he's just been, uh, you know, his opponent has just been too good for him in most of it. In 2009, he played a really great final against Nadal. And in 2010, he was blown off the court by Vadasco. And in the same with 2012. And he even lost convincingly to Federer in 2014. I mean, of course, he was he had his uh, niggles with the wrist there. But I, he's, I think, I mean, regardless... Federer would have won it, I believe. I don't think Djokovic is beating Federer that day. And so, like, taking all of that into account, I was not too surprised because, I mean, it, it makes sense because a, it, that, that event is dominated by one man alone, that is Nadal. And second, I mean, it, it, it took so much for Djokovic to finally win it in 2013, which, you know, it, it's, again, it, that should be one of the greatest wins ever in his career, the way he stopped Nadal. And Nadal wasn't playing bad, sure. You know, he was coming back from injury, but he did win Indian Wells, which, I mean, you you shouldn't... And he, he won a couple of titles on play. Uh, you know, I think, I believe it was in Sao Paulo and Acapulco, but I I don't... So I don't... I, I wouldn't really say that, you know, he beat a compromised Nadal or Nadal wasn't 100% because he was playing really well. And you know, obviously, he, would, he, he played as well as to reach the final. And he was on some 40-41 match win streak at the event. And, and the, the way he won. And, you know, matches like those are still reasons. And, and of course, you know, how close he came in Rome uh, a few a few weeks back are still reasons as to why people, they don't rule out Djokovic against Nadal at the French. Although, obviously, as Nadal should be, uh, he, he is the strong favourite. And you know, obviously, I called it really wrong last year. I thought Djokovic would win that final, but that was that was one way traffic. But you know, I think I believe the story is going to be a lot different this time. Nadal is the favorite for sure, but if these two meet, I think it could be a battle, especially since it's a best of five. You, you know, Djokovic will come out swinging freely. He will have more confidence uh, considering the show he put up in Rome. And, uh, you know, again, you know, he would obviously go back to matches that I wouldn't take the 2015 wins too seriously because Nadal was losing left, right, center. Then. Sorry, that season. And, you know, so lose, uh, and so I, I don't think even Djokovic would consider those wins as much of an achievement as his wins in 2011 and 
the one in 2013, and we almost it ended up taking out Nadal uh, in the French Open semifinal. So, you know, I again, whether he will add a second title, that that purely depends on a. You know, does Nadal lose to somebody early or before facing Djokovic? And B, does Djokovic, you know, because inevitably he is going to end up facing Nadal, uh, you know, however far he makes it in the makes it. Uh, whether it's the semis or the final, he is going to face Nadal most likely. And whether or not, uh, you know, what Djokovic shows up is he is he uh, is he is he pushed uh, to the limit by any player on, uh, on until that point? Is he fresh? How is he feeling mentally uh, matching up to Nadal? Does he feel overwhelmed? Does he feel like the pressure's on him? Or if he, you know, plays like an underdog, like I, I mean, sure he wouldn't, he wouldn't say it, and many people wouldn't say it, but I do believe, like in the, uh, at the back of his mind, he felt that he was the underdog in the Rome final, and that's why he. You know, he was able to like play as as freely as free as he could. So if he feels that way and he doesn't have too many, uh, you know, he doesn't feel like uh, you know that there's a boulder of expectations on his shoulders, then yeah, it it depends on that. But you you can't really bet against the doll uh, at at the French, and especially uh, at least the way things stand, because you know we saw last year he. He, he he played three matches before the play season. He lost to Schwartzman in Rome, but he still ended up winning it without dropping a set. And you know, bearing in mind that the conditions uh, were uh, ones that the, the the least favorite of Nadal, and he also was not happy with the situation of the, the change in the tennis balls. I believe they switched to Wilson, and you know, he was one of the uh, one of the you know, main, one of the few players who were really vocal against uh, against it, he even cited that they could be uh, harmful, you know, in in the long run. They could be uh, physically compromising. But he, considering all of that, and considering the fact that Djokovic was tipped to take out Nadal because you know the conditions, you know, they favored him as much as they were they did not favor Nadal. He still, you know, he still like he, he demolished Djokovic and he, you know, he took the title. So there are a few things, you, you know, very, very few things that you could use to bet against Nadal or, or even nothing at all to bet against Nadal. But, you know, I, again, it's, it's striking that balance between feeling that Djokovic is going to win French Open and uh, feeling that, oh, Djokovic is, he's, he has no chance whatsoever. He's pretty much done. On, on the dirt, but it, it's somewhere in between, I would say. But I, if he he will, you know, go down to Nadal, but not without a fight. That's what I feel. Yeah, um, that's a very good <laughs> synopsis of uh, you know Djokovic on clay in the past few years and the rivalry with Nadal and whether or not, uh, and you talking about his chances um, against Nadal. I think the draw is going to be very key as we move ahead into this Roland Garros and also the matches in Belgrade where tomorrow he takes on the brother of uh, Guillermo Coria, Federico Coria, which again just points to his longevity, I feel, because, you know, he played Guillermo Coria in 2006 and they played each other four times and now he's going to play his brother, which is kind of interesting. But, uh, but regardless, what, who is the one player 
that you would not want Djokovic to face, you know, being a fan of his, like what is a nightmare kind of draw situation that you would, you would think, Oh no, you know, this could hurt his chances, you know, later in the tournament. Uh, if he were to potentially meet, you know, like a Sitsipas in the quarterfinal or, a, you know, or a Nadal in the semi or anything like that. What, who is the one or two, if you can name a few like opponents that you would fear, you know, heading into that uh, match? Yeah, one would be Sitsipas for sure. Uh, you know, he, he, the way he played in Rome, you know, he, like, he, he was, he was pretty much dominating most of the match until Djokovic again. You know, he came back out of nowhere and he snagged that second set. And he was about to go double breakdown in the third set. And the way he won, it was just crazy. And that, and I remember sharing that that tweet with the with those like various score lines of the match and Djokovic ended, like ending up winning it. And that really that's that smashed. I mean, I, the, the, the notifications kept flooding, and I had to eventually like, turn up, turn it off for that tweet because it it, it just wouldn't stop. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, but that was and that gave me more confidence more than anything because you know, Djokovic himself said that he, you know, against the younger guys, he feels like you know, playing uh, best of five matches gives him the advantage. He, feels, he still feels like he can beat these guys, sure. I mean, the one, one, I don't know if you can still count Dominic Team as a young guy, I'm sure he's turning 28 this year. But he's the one guy, I believe, who can beat Djokovic in the best of five. Doesn't matter what surface. He did come close in the Australian Open as well uh, in 2020. And he did beat him in the semifinal of the 2019 uh, Ron Garros. So I think you, you can never rule out team. Uh, I did mention this uh, on, uh, on the spaces that you posted, I think, last week. That, you know, we, you know this is similar to how 2018 looked. For, for Dominic team, he didn't have too many matches, but sure, he beat Nadal in Madrid. But other than that, it was a pretty average play season leading up to French Open where he really picked and he made the final. Of course, it was overwhelming. He did lose to Nadal, but uh, you, you, you can still not count him out. You know, you can just come out swinging and before you know it, you know, just it, it, it just takes a few matches. Granted, he doesn't have a brutal draw because team... He's had one brutal draw after the other in slams we've seen. And, uh, you know, granted, that's not the case. I really, I would, uh, I would not, uh, you know, like to see Djokovic face team because, you know, if he, if he is going to face Nadal, then it's going to be, it's definitely going to be taxing if he used to come through Dominic team unless, you know, unless by some miracle Djokovic wins in three or four sets. And doesn't tax him, doesn't tax himself too much. Uh, but since he passed again, you know, last year Djokovic should have won that in straight sets. You know, it's credit to Sitsipas the way he came back. Uh, and you know, the fifth set, I believe, you know, he started cramping, and it was just it was just crazy to see how Djokovic he did not express anything whatsoever until the end of that match. You you would have. I mean, it was it was not it was not yesterday that uh, we saw him like smash his racket like a maniac in in the second round of a two fifty event against the two hundred and fifty third ranked player in the world. And you know, from for for someone like that, he didn't show 
you know one bit of frustration in that match because I, it, in the, like in the back of, at the back of his mind he still believed that he's the one who's going to take this and he did so that that was there and second is this win would give Djokovic more confidence because you would tip a next gen player to usually take out these guys when it comes to uh, you know best of three matches that's what we saw with Shapovalov but you know he he fell short unfortunately and that that was what happened with Sitsipas. I mean, you can't really say uh, Sitsipas choked the way that match because Djokovic just played some incredible points to get like get get back into get back into the match on so many occasions. And the fact that he was able to win that best of three encounter, I I don't I feel more secure of his chances against Sitsipas in a best of five. Match. I will not rule out Tsitsipas because we have seen time and again he's a guy who learns, uh, you know, from his from his losses. We we saw that with the way he turned around his rivalry against uh, Felix Auger Aliassime, and uh, and also uh, you know the way he turned around the Australian Open quarterfinal against Nadal. You know, he, granted that he did lose to him pretty convincingly two years ago in the semis. And he was losing convincingly. And as I spoke with you and Owen on on your spaces a, a week ago, you know, he did not... I believe he won just one point of Nadal's serve in that third set, but he still ended up winning the match, which is crazy. So, you know, Sitsipas, he, 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 he lives for these... Uh, for these uh, uh, for these matches, he he definitely wants to. Uh, what do you call? It? He he would he would definitely love to have another shot, especially after last year and after what happened in Rome. And he would be more motivated for sure. And a lot depends on how Djokovic, whether or not he, you know, he allows uh, Sitsipas to really take control of the match. You know, as as we can see, you know, Djokovic if he wants to, he can. He can just take it to his opponent and just like suffocate him for most of the match, and uh, you know that 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 was kind of interesting. What happened last year in the semifinal because Djokovic was not too convincing, but this the scoreline would make you uh, feel otherwise. But he eventually went to five sets and he won. But I still feel you know that that it, it could go both ways. Sitsipas would be raring to uh, beat this guy or. Djokovic would feel more confident that he came came through in their last two encounters, which could have swung either way, and he would have, you know, as we have seen with Djokovic, you know, many times in his career that these matches which could have really gone either way, and he comes when he comes out of those matches, he just he you know he just plays with so much confidence, not only against that particular opponent in the subsequent matches, but you know, just in general, yeah. Probably in the remainder of that particular tournament as well. So that that is what, and you know, of course, Sitsipas and team well, players. I wouldn't like him to draw. And if I if I could, I would add in Casper Ruud as well because he can definitely take the match to four or five sets. He he you know he he's he's a guy to watch out for. And whoever draws him in the fourth round, you know, I think that that player is going to have a hard time, regardless of whether it's Djokovic, Nadal, or Sitsipas. Or, yeah, or I think if oh, you could mention Zverev, I, I don't know if again I, I'm really hesitant to consider Zverev as a favorite because people are 
I don't know. You know, I don't want to. I'm not being judgmental or anything, but I think people are drawing a lot of false hope from his Madrid run uh, because. But the conditions are completely different. He cannot. He. I don't think he'll have uh, the luxury of you know his uh, big serve bailing him out when he needs to, or you know as we would use the uh, un, like unconventional term serve bot his way out of trouble. Uh, and he cannot do that. It, uh, on Philippe Chatri at least, so I'm I'm hesitant about his chances, but I think you know dark horses would be for sure. You know, I don't know. Again, Rublev, he's he's sort of a, a, a sure shot to reach the quarters. Yeah. What he does from there, that that we'll have to see. He's yet to you know do anything significant in the Grand Slam quarterfinal, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, that and then Casper Ruud, I would definitely watch out for him, and I hope he doesn't disappoint by losing in the first or second round after you know all of the hype. He just won Geneva and he made the uh, sem- uh, semi-final of the two clay uh, court Masters events that he played, which you know is a great achievement, and you know he's one of the guys who you know you would want to look out for during the French Open. Yeah, um, so. We are, uh, you know, unfortunately running out of time with uh, a guest like Shrihari. We could go on for days and days to be <laughs> to be completely honest. But I do want to me- I do want to go back to one thing you said about um, Djokovic and his popularity. Um, something that did just occur to me is I was looking this up as we were talking, but Djokovic has 8.1 million followers on Instagram. You know, yes. Uh, Roger Federer has 8.2 million. Like yeah. it's. And, you know, you're right about that narrative a lot, um, even said by the commentators and, you know, by social media and fans that, you know, he's not as well loved. And it's, you know, you can make certainly make that case. But just going off of um, tournaments that I've been to and also tournaments, like you said, having experience, um, you can also make the case that in so many other places apart from the U.S. and the U.K., um, he is very well received and liked by a lot of fans, you know, in China, in places like Dubai and Doha, in uh, in Australia, where he's won nine titles, um, even in Italy, Rome, um, you know, places like that. So um, definitely that was a good point you made about that. And uh, just to add a little bit more to the dark horses, someone also to watch out, you, you mentioned Casper Ruud. That's a really good one. I also think... Um, Sonego could be quite dangerous if he can capture that form again. And he's going to be seated um, at the French Open too. And then also Aslan Karatsev. For me, um, the run that he's had this year, getting to the Australian Open semifinal, and then backing that up, winning in Dubai, and then also um, taking out Djokovic in Belgrade, saving all those break points. So he's a, he's definitely another name to to watch out for. And then, you know, a dangerous first-round match that I would have thought of would be a player like Musetti or Korda that uh, is doing, these are players that are making their names at 250s and, uh, you know, other tournaments and even uh, masters in case of Korda. So these are, it's going to be very interesting to see how the draw uh, plans out. And it's definitely not going to be an easy road for either of the seeds, I feel like, um, um, at this year's French Open. So Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, and well. I think... Sorry, uh, I think there's Chilic as well, who anyone could draw in the first round. Right. I and yeah. yeah, I don't. I, sure, he he lost in Vincent the last year, but I don't think anyone will draw him in the first round. We, we, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, for who sure. Ends up 
Yeah. For and, those, uh, and, yeah. And I, I know we're running out of time, but an idea I had that I think we could use to sort of uh, close out this podcast is um, mm -hmm. I was thinking, Srihari, we could ask you a bunch of rapid fire questions, like really short questions, like what's your favorite major or um, what's your favorite Djokovic match? And you could just respond with some reflex answers, uh, like couple words, and we'll just do as many of those as we can in like a minute or two. Uh, what would you sure. guys thoughts on that day? Yeah. Sound good to you, Vaughn? Yeah, that, that sounds great to me. Yeah. All right, cool. You want to start us off? I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but. Okay, yeah. Um, I, I guess uh, favorite tournament to visit as a fan? It, it was Indian Wells for sure. Nice. Um, best Masters 1000 on tour? Um, interesting. Uh, I would say maybe uh, Roger Scott. Yeah, that's a, that's a great choice. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll say uh, favorite uh, favorite shot uh, on the tennis court. Uh, maybe drop shot. Yeah, I'll go with drop shot. Nice. All right. I would say, um, who is your favorite player to watch Djokovic play against? Federer for sure. I, I really enjoy that matchup more than any other matchup. That's mm -hmm. a good one. Uh, favorite. Player not named Djokovic. Shapovalov. Nice. Um, what is the best and worst major final Djokovic has ever played? The best, uh, I would say, is the, the of course, the, um, I, I would say 2019 Australian Open final, considering everything. Uh, and, you know, the opponent, the, the stakes behind it. The worst, easily, the 2013 Wimbledon final. Um, favorite, favorite match of all time? Hmm. Involving Djokovic or just in general? Could be anything. Okay. Yeah. I would go with the 2012 Australian Open semifinal with Djokovic and Murray. Nice. Yeah. I definitely agree with you that that match is underrated. Um, if you could pick one match in history and have Djokovic be able to play that one back over, uh, what would you pick? Uh, I would say last year's French Open final. That's a good one. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of uh, some others. How about favorite favorite surface? Uh, grass court for sure. Uh, Vonch took mine there. Um, if you could attend any of the majors, what would you? Which one would you go to? It, it would be. Uh, the Australian Open, I, I feel. It, it was close between Australian Open and Wimbledon, but it's just so hard to get to watch a match at Wimbledon. And Australian Open, just, you know, for Djokovic's legacy over there, and I would I would definitely love to watch Novak on Rod Laver Arena. That's that's on, a, on my bucket list for sure. Favorite commentator? Um, Rob Koenig. Good answer. Jason That's Bura a great comes close, but yeah. Yeah. Um, let's say, who is um, your favorite tennis player not from the current generation? So favorite retired player? Hmm, interesting. I don't know if I have one yet. Maybe maybe if Songa or Delpo, if they retire, uh, you know, they would they would be it because Delpo is one of my favorite players. Uh, you know, I don't mean to insult them by kind of 
uh, kind of uh, like considering that he's quite close to retirement. Uh, unfortunately, with, with how his career has panned out. I, I like Burdich. Not really. I, I don't know if I would call him a favorite. But yeah, I I think that's very much it. I don't I don't know if there's anyone who has retired uh, who I would call myself a fan of. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's that. Right about does it. I feel like I I got one more. If that's okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. Sure. Um, if you could either give Djokovic um, an Olympic gold medal in singles or another Roland Garros title, uh, what would you pick? It would be the gold medal. That's that was an easy one because uh, I, for me, it's uh, completeness more than uh, quantity. I think I mentioned this many times. So that's literally the only big title that's missing from his cabinet because he has everything else, and uh, he has all of the Masters. He's won each of them multiple times. He has all of the Slams, and you know, not many players have won each each of the Slams. Uh, you know, multiple times. Which I mean, if Federer and Nadal haven't, I don't think we should really come down on Djokovic for that. But having the Olympic gold, that's I think I think that would just you know that would just be really special for both Djokovic and his fans because there's you know he's he's won everything that the sport has to offer. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think if the Olympics happen this year, uh, you would be silly to bet against him to get it. So yeah, yeah. Th- um, thank you for coming on, and uh, we'd love to do it again sometime. Yeah. I would love to be here once again, for sure. I really had a blast. Yeah. All right. Glad to hear it. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 